On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Raphael Bello about the moral status of Christ's human nature. Did he have an unfallen human nature or did he have a fallen human nature? The reason we ask this question is because some have put forth the idea that Christ assumed a fallen human nature so that he could be a true, sympathetic, and merciful high priest like Hebrews tells us. So we're going to ask him, is this really necessary to make sense of that text? Uh, what, what about original sin? How does this impact uh, that doctrine? What about inseparable operations and Trinitarian relationship? What about the metaphysics of grace? And why is it preferable, in, in his understanding and in our understanding, for Christ to have an unfallen human nature? And what does this really say about the creedal status or confessional status of different things? What if we do affirm a fallen human nature? Does this lead us outside the bounds of particular creeds or confessions? Uh, tune in to find out. I think he's a wonderful interview. We learned a lot from him. He's very helpful. And if you have questions or thoughts or ideas for upcoming episodes, you can always email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we're going to talk about the fallen and or unfallen nature debate as it relates to Christology. So we had a listener, a regular listener, uh, who's been on the show before, Morgan Bird, reach out and say, hey, I've been reading about this stuff. Uh, I'd love to have somebody on and talk about this topic. And when that when Brandon told me that, I thought of no one better than who we've got today, uh, Dr. Rafael Bello. Uh, who's somewhere down in Brazil, I think. Uh, so I'll let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows who you are. I imagine some of our listeners are going to know who you are, but I would guess a large portion of them don't. So maybe give a little bit of background on just you know, what you like to do and what you like to study and everything. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I honestly don't know how anyone would know me. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how you guys discovered who I am. But uh, yeah, uh, so my name is Rafael Bello. I'm, uh, I'm a professor of theology and interpretation at Martin Luther Seminary down in uh, São José dos Campos in Brazil, which is about a, an hour north of São Paulo. So one of the greatest metropolis in the world. Uh, and uh, let's see, I finished my PhD in systematic theology in 2019, uh, moved to Brazil. Uh, December 2019 itself, I am. Uh, I did my PhD under Steve Wellam, and uh, let's see. I'm married. I have three kids. I'm married to Josie. We have three kids, uh, ages four, two, and nine months. Actually, nine months today. Uh, turned nine months today, and uh, that's it. I I work also for a publisher called uh, Fiel Publishing House doing academic editing for them and uh, helping develop curriculum for pastors who don't have access to good resources. That's awesome. Broad, uh, broad overview. Mm -hmm. And the topic we're talking about today, you have a book coming out with Lexham Pre Press soon on this, right? Yeah, I have, um, I have my, it's a pub, it's kind of a slightly modified version of my dissertation. Uh, so the title, if you know anything about publishing, uh, they choose the title. You never choose the title. Uh, it's always the publisher's choice. Uh, so they, they, they title it uh, Sinless Flesh, uh, Critique of Karl Barth's Fallen Christ, uh, although it doesn't focus exclusive, exclusively in, in Barth, uh, but 
in kind of in in the way it relates to everything it, it is on uh uh related to to bart in in a few things so uh yeah good stuff very cool so I guess we can just jump right in on uh, on the topic at hand. So why don't we just begin with a, a basic definition of what is a human nature? Because we got to know what that is, I guess, before we can even continue to get into the question of whether or not Christ had a fallen nature. So could you define uh, human nature for us? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, um, and and uh, it's debated actually. Uh, I think the the easier way to kind of get into it is to say. Uh, or, or at least minimally, you can say it's a human nature. Human nature is comprised of a body and a soul, right? Uh, that's what that's what you have to say to say someone has a human nature. Uh, you know, it depends. Sometimes it can be amorphous, uh, or uh, you can you can have a, some dualist version. But I think that's at least minimal what you, of what you can say of what human nature has. Now, to define a human nature is complicated, just as defining anything's nature is complicated. So, you know, if you philosophically, if you ask, uh, you know, what is the nature of a, I don't know, a tree? Uh, you, if you chop it down, a, uh, a apple tree. If you chop it down, one of the branches, it's still a, 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 an apple tree, right? And you, you keep going with these questions, like if you take this, it's still an apple tree. If you take that, it's still an apple tree. Where minimally you have to say it's it's the, you know, it's the apple tree-ness or, you know, the capacity to bear apples. Uh, that is the, that's what an apple tree is or the, the nature of an apple tree. I think the same thing can be said of a human nature, which is, Human nature's, you know, the nature of a human nature is humanness. Like the same principle is applied to it. You can chop my arm, my eyes, my my nose, you know, up until whatever. But you still, I still have my humanness with me. You, the the only thing is that if you, if I don't have a soul, or if I don't have a body, then I I'm not a human being. I don't have human nature per se. So it's a it you know it's a complicated thing. I think theologians and philosophers have debated uh, concepts of nature for millennia, uh, but I think minimally you can say those things. That makes sense. So I guess when it comes to this area, I think most recently I was reading Mark Cortez's uh, was it resourcing theological anthropology, and he has a chapter on on, on this very topic of the idea that Christ having a fallen human nature. And I think he ended up landing with, yeah, I think that makes more sense on the whole of the data. So I guess maybe you can explain to us what is this idea of Jesus having a fallen human nature and why would it potentially be problematic? Yeah. Uh, I think the first thing we have to say on this issue is that uh, anyone coming from any of the sides, right. Cannot, uh, label the other heretic or uh, outside of the Christian tradition. Uh, and I think that's more, uh, I think the error of labeling the other heretic comes more from the side that I choose to be on than the other side. So uh, I think it makes more sense of the data to say that Christ does not have a fallen a human nature. But 
in the end of the day, I think that people affirming that Christ has a fallen human nature uh, are not, you know, at least the ones that I surveyed on my book, right? They're not saying that Christ sinned, which is, I think is a, it's a, it's a, it's the biggest problem. If you say that Christ is human like us and he also sinned like us, then it's impossible for you to have a mediator. It's impossible for you to have someone to represent you before God and, and all sorts of different problems start to kind of uh, come up. Uh, so that doing that, that, Talking about this and, and saying this minimally, I think it's important. Uh, I think it, the, the, on the other side, what I argue in my book is that the problems that come with the having a fallen human nature, and we can discuss this more uh, thoroughly in the, in the podcast, is uh, it tends to talk about human nature uh, devoided or separately maybe from a Trinitarian agency. And uh, and also, I think it has or brings some problems exactly because of that Trinitarian agency brings some problems to a metaphysics of grace, uh, and uh, and then separately, I think it's a separate issue. So so to to kind of come back, uh, Trinitarian agency and and metaphysics of grace go hand in hand, uh, and then you have the issue of original sin, uh, which I think it it kind of also is another unit that uh, is problematic for those who um, argue for a fallen human nature of Christ. And you have, you know, I'm not alone on any of those camps, I think. But we can talk more thoroughly on that. But those those are the problems that I serve in my dissertation. And, and even to come back to the first question, uh, I don't, I don't like have a positive, my dissertation or my book doesn't lay a positive vision for what really is uh, an unfallen human nature. All I'm all I'm doing is really just creating creating fences, so to speak, mm-hmm. of like, hey, this is a, an appropriate way to talk about the human nature of Christ, and uh, you can be in a lot of places within the unfallen with the unfallen uh, camp. Uh, I do think that being in the unfallen camp is it's not an appropriate way, but I'm not really setting a, a positive uh, positive version for the uh, unfallen human nature. So maybe you can help me understand why is it that some have advanced this idea of a fallen human nature? What makes it attractive to them to say, yes, Jesus has a fallen nature? Uh, you know, so so in, in my in my book, I I served mainly Karl Barth and uh, Thomas Torrance, right? And I think so. The, it, it's different uh, the way both of them argue for it. So for Bart, uh, the main issue is there are two main issues for Bart, which are which are solidarity, and also the heading of the communication of idioms with the communication of graces, uh, which I can get into more detail. Yeah. And then for uh, and then for Torrance, uh, it's avoidance of dualism. Right, so for Torrance, you can't really speak of a uh, person in life, personal life, and work of Christ separately. So usually, you know, didactically, you say, "Hey, this is what the life of Christ looks like, and this is what the work of Christ achieves." Uh, separating those things, and for Torrance, like dualism. If you know anything about Torrance, is that like he really hates dualism, and he thinks that 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 kind of separation 
is is creating is creating a dualism in his his own in the theology of you know the person of Christ. Okay. Yeah. So a, a famous saying from uh, Gregory Nazianzus is the unassumed the unassumed is the unhealed. So basically, mm-hmm. his point there is that if Christ doesn't assume whatever it is, then it won't be healed. So I, I think at the very least, we can all agree that. Uh, if Christ doesn't genuinely assume a human nature, then human nature will not be healed. But I know some have taken this to mean that Christ has to assume a fallen human nature if he's going to heal um, a fallen human nature. Now, how does that tie in in comparison to, no, I'm not saying that Nazi Anzus is arguing for a fallen human nature, but um, how does that <clears throat> that quote tie into Torrance and Bart and anybody else who has tried to argue for the fallen human nature? How does it factor in? Yeah, so the quote itself is the uh, is where the term uh, comes from. So the term for fallen human nature in scholarship is is said to be the uh, the non-assumptus, right? Mm-hmm. So the the idea of a non-assumptus comes from that that uh, little phrase itself. Whatever is not assumed is not healed. You know, uh, and non-assumptus is is in there in in the Latin translation, and uh as you said nazionsis is not really uh it's not really arguing for the fall human nature he's it's a letter it's a letter to cledonius he is responding to the challenge of apollinarianism in a sense right so he's saying like christ really in order for him to heal the whole of human nature he has to have a human soul right mm-hmm. Because that's what comprised to be a human, it's body and soul. So he's uh, he's already kind of coming from that initial uh, initial uh, differentiation, which is key, I think, in the whole concept uh, for him. So that's uh, I don't know if I answered your question because no, no. As, as you were as you were asking, I saw an eagle fly just by my window, so I kind of zoomed out <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. I, I, I remember, I'd like to talk about um, how this relates to uh, being guilty of sin and things like that. So <clears throat> I remember in reading um, Oliver Crisp's book, Divinity and Humanity, it seems like, if I remember correctly, that, that he argues against the fallen nature view because it, it seemed like he was saying that, that guilt um, logically precedes corruption so you you can't assume a corrupt human nature without also assuming the guilt um i don't know would you say that that is well first of all is that a fair representation of of what chris said if you've read it but also would you do you think that that is a a weakness of the fallen nature view yeah so i think uh i think what chris said in that particular essay is correct uh, I uh, I don't know. Maybe he does review. I think he does some slightly uh, slight revisions upon that his own argument uh, later. Uh, to not to include the fallen human nature per se, but he does. Uh, I don't know if he changes or he does some some tweakings on a relationship of guilt and uh, and kind of corruption. Um, so that to follow what he says, a more Zwinglian view on the original sin. Uh, I do think so. I think that that essay is uh, the one you're talking about in uh, Divinity Humanity is a good essay. I think, though, 
uh, and I talk about this in my own work, is uh, Bavink has a really good discussion on the transmission of sin, right? Uh, and he, uh, interestingly enough, he, he does pick, if you know anything about Bavink, he still has like that in, impulse of, he's not in scholastic per se. I mean, he's an eclectic uh, theologian. He's pulling from all sorts of, all sorts of people, Augustine to Schleimacher. But uh, he's, he's, rep he's responding to, to Jonathan Edwards, which he sees uh, as one who has a, a realist view of the transmission of sin. And his basic argument uh, over there is that human nature is, uh, is part of this organic motif that whole theology, the whole of theology has, right? Which is ectypal to archetypal. God, uh, God being the archetype and, and we being ectypally made in, in that. So the, the organic motif of unity and diversity comes back to the trinitarian the trinitarian nature of God itself. So when you talk about so when you talk about the transmission of sin, you can go one uh, from the from the argument that Crisp lays out uh, of like fallenness and corruption being one following the other and being tightly connected to the other, uh, because you know if you have fallenness, then by implication you have guilt. Um, to also uh, this uh, Bavink's argument, which is the organic motif, I think that I think that the Bavink argument is a little bit more strong, uh, because uh, as Chris itself, Chris himself will, I think, do some uh, some changes or talk a lot of things about a little bit different as to uh, talk about you know something that there's which is the danger basically it's the danger of. Uh, of asserting that you a sin that you did not commit, which is you cannot be guilty of, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, he's trying to respond to that, and I think Bavink Bavink's arguments of organic 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 motif is stronger and evades that charge a little bit better. Mm. Um, you know, even though you even though you did not sin, it's not a personal sin. One, you can you can go to federalism exegetically which is an argument that you can go uh it requires some exegetical work but also you can you have this uh, advantage of uh organic representation also uh and i think at the end of the day it's it's a little bit stronger hmm. sorry if that's i'm cool. going in circles yeah no, no, no that's that very helps. helpful thank you yeah i was looking at cortez's book and he he definitely tries to say that humans receive corruption but not guilt from adam mm-hmm yeah. It seems that if, if you link those two, that corruption and sin, then you cannot you definitely cannot have a fallen human nature in Christ. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And and it, and and I think it, to be fair, I think it it's a uh it, in the end of the day it comes to how you have to exegete the text, right? Mm -hmm. Uh it's uh ex theology and exegesis are intrinsically connected. So it, it, that's why uh, my dissertation or my book doesn't have a lot of, you know, Bible exegesis. But when it comes to that particular section, I do have a longer discussion on biblical texts. So I'm just, I'm just trying to think through this. So is it is it an oversimplification to say that you cannot hold to a federal theology with federal headship and a, 
and a fallen human nature view is that yeah i think uh i think if you if you do have a federal federal headship view then it's pretty hard for you to uh to affirm a fallen humanity yeah um you know in the end of the day because christ christ is still has the created human nature right Mm -hmm. uh so it's uh it's different than you know old anabaptist theology which would say that christ received his human nature from heaven uh the human nature of christ is really created uh and you have to you have to account for the the issues of continuity and discontinuity with the whole metaphysics of grace and trinitarian agency and that's why uh, i kind of had to go through that to to answer to those challenges that makes sense. And as I'm looking at, at Cortez again, he, he mentions in here that the concern has to do with whether his experiences, Jesus's, are sufficiently similar to our own that he can serve as our merciful high priest. So I imagine that seems like a large reason for people to say, well, let me see if I can make sense of the fallen human nature view, because then Jesus has even more similar experiences like me. Is that a legitimate and fair way, or I guess benefit of going that route? Or can an unfallen nature say, no, Jesus can have sufficiently similar uh, experiences to me in all the relevant senses to be that merciful high priest? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you look at Bart, that's that's his his main uh, driving point, right? It's that, so a lot of people, when they read Bart, they want to read him in this uh, sort of metaphysic, like actualistic ontology thing kind of driving home everything. I do think like he, a lot of what he's doing is just like really pastoral uh, reading the Bible with its full economical shape. Um, And, and, and that's his main concern. Like if you look in church dogmatics, one pages to 14 to 17, that's like, he has to, he has to be like us. There is a solidarity motif uh, that is so strong that if we if we disconnect that from 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 it, from him, then he can't really save us. Um, now to answer your question, like can can an unfallen human nature view account for that for that same thing in the same way? Uh, I think it, I think it can, right? It's it certainly it's one of the charges is that it cannot. Uh, but I think the uh, it it doesn't mean that temptation doesn't hold sway on him, right? So uh, the example for, you, you mentioned that crisp that crisp essay. He says, uh, even even though uh, you are you, you can be a better boxer than someone, and you know, like, hey, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that I can I can win uh, this boxing match, but if you still don't step on the ring, you you haven't beat the other guy yet, right? You still have to step on the ring. Mm-hmm. And now, with with Christ, you know he, in one sense, has the advantage of, or I don't even want to say the advantage, but he like personal agency is the personal agency of the Son, right? Because the discussion within the whole within the, the whole thing is like, who is the, who is the person, right? So if the person is the second person of the Trinity is divine agent, 
then he cannot sin because to sin is an is an act. An act belongs to persons and not to natures. Natures don't act, right? Natures are properties. You have a nature. You don't have, uh, you know, na- you have a nature by property of what a person has, and a person subsists in a nature. So the son doesn't sin because he's a he's a divine person. To sin would be to deny himself, but he still has to step on the ring and suffer the punches that the other boxer kind of throws on him. Even though he's, we can be confident, and he's confident that he has the final victory on his hands. Doesn't mean that the blows are still not blows. They're still blows, you know. Mm-hmm. So. So what 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 do you make of I've heard some people say that you know on on a an unfallen nature view that the temptation that Christ faces is actually more intense and it's actually um harder to to deal with than than it is for us um because we eventually give in so like that 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 pressure of the temptation eases because we give in and we sin but but he continued i think i've heard different analogies like lifting weights you know where you hold the weight and you never like let it fall down on your chest like well, that's what christ is doing he's, he's holding that weight like for his entire life without ever letting it drop like how do you how do you think temptation really plays into do you think that the unfallen nature view has a a better uh, a, a better explanation for the temptation of Christ. Yeah. So uh, let me uh, j- let me just clarify a couple of things. Of I mean, I have an opinion about it, right? Uh, <laughs> but let me just uh, on my work is not, and it's a it's a common thing. Like when I talk about what I've written, people like, oh, it's the issue what of whether or not Christ could have sinned, could have, could not have sinned. Right. And I think I, I gave, you know, I laid my cards on the table to say, I don't think he could have sinned. Right. But that's not really like, I'm not, my work is not a discussion on like whether, you know, because those, those issues are important. Mm-hmm. And but my work is like on the, the moral status of the human nature of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the moral status of the human nature? Uh, that's why, for example, that analogy that you just talked about, I don't think I've heard of, or even though I think it's a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. because I'm just concentrating on, and I keep coming back to this word because I think it's important. I think I uh, concentrated on the metaphysical, mm-hmm. you know, status and moral status of the human nature of Christ. What, what, what does it imply? Now, I think, I think it's a good, I think it's a good, I think it's a good analogy. The one that you just described, um, cause he, he still hold, he, he held everything and didn't sin. It's perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. Sorry if that was a little off topic, my bad. (laughs) No, no, it's not, it's not, I mean, I, it it was funny. Like I, I presented, I presented a a kind of a a modified version of one chapter of my dissertation in, uh, uh, and, uh, the LA theology conference, which is like, Mm -hmm. I've, I mean, I love, (laughs) I loved all the books that came out of that. I mean, you know, chapters are pretty good. Uh, and people sitting there like top-notch scholars and you know i still had, had questions on the impeccability or or the impeccability of christ and uh i think because those issues are so intertwined and they are but you know it's like if you know i think one of you guys is working on a dissertation for a phd you know you're like you're zeroing in on a very particular yeah. sliver of thing you're not really getting too much out of there 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you, you mentioned, I think the idea behind this a little bit earlier, but I want to press in on it. So inseparable operations, it's been mentioned, you've mentioned it a couple of times. And I think your comment about how it's the person who acts and not the nature might be part of where you go with this. But I'm curious, how does inseparable operations speak to this issue? Is it that um, if, if I guess, if the person acts, then uh, we can't say that Jesus assumed to fall in nature because then that would mess with our Trinitarian relations or, or what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, the way I'm developing uh, inseparable operations is to, uh, is, is for a few things, right? Uh, and and I'll, I'll go ahead and explain the whole uh, inseparable operations and the views of grace, because I think those are important. Uh, so when, when, the, when the son assumes a human nature, we have to say that he assumes he's the terminus of that action, right? So he's, uh, it's, it's really the son that assumes the human nature. It's not the spirit and it's not the father. The Bible is clear on that. However, we have as a corollary of uh, dogmatic theology that every act of God is inseparable. The son doesn't act separately from the father and the spirit. So how can we speak appropriately of the incarnation and the assumption of human flesh with, with that corollary kind of hanging over our, our heads? Uh, and then uh, Adonis Voodoo has a, a, good, a good essay on this, uh, and he uses the analogy of a, of a butler addressing a king. Have you guys heard of that, uh, that analogy? Uh, okay. So imagine, uh, imagine a butler is dressing a king. The end of the action of being dressed is predicated upon the king, right? Who, who got dressed? The king. But the whole action that you're speaking of in that, in that sense is an action that pertains to the king and the butler, right? Uh, so that's, that's one thing, right? So the the the, the father, son, and spirit uh, whole uh, action to kind of has the son as a terminus, but is the father and the son and the spirit are intertwined. With that, you have another issue, which is uh, the visible and invisible missions. So the visible mission is that the son takes a human nature. You can see him; he's there. The spirit comes upon him as a dove. It's visible. It's in the Bible. It, you you can witness that. You had witnesses of that. The Father speaks. This is my Son. Obey Him. So we have all these visible things, but we have invisible missions too that are part and connecting the dots of uh, the uh, of the whole thing of the whole Trinitarian agency. And the invisible missions are usually connected to works of sanctification, right? So the spirit comes upon the son, the spirit sanctifies the human nature of, of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, however, uh, so this, this is kind of a part one thing, preparing the, preparing the way, right? Who, uh, we, we do know also that, visib- uh, that uh, missions reveal processions, Right. This mm-hmm. is a it's another important 
And you can all see, like, if you want to see more detailed discussions of that, you can go to my book. And I have, but I'm just kind of hitting the, the highlights here. It's it's a kind of a long, sustained argument that I'm trying to make there. Uh, you do know that uh, visible uh, missions reveal processions. So the spirit cannot be sent apart from the sun because we have the filioque, right? So if you're at least in the Western tradition, you know that the father and the son send the spirit or, or breathe out the spirit, right? So when you're talking about a, uh, the taking of a human nature, you have to say it's the father and the son who sends the spirit, who send the spirit into his own human nature. So it's, it's the idea that the son breathes the spirit into himself, right? Because even though, even though the spirit comes, he doesn't come, he doesn't come on a vacuum or he doesn't come separately from the agency of the son. All right. So this was this was the chapter on inseparable operations, which is laying the foundation for uh, the chapter on the graces. So when you're talking about uh, the sanctification of Christ, uh, the 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 proponents of the fallen human nature are going to say that he needs to be sanctified, right? He needs to yeah. to endure. He needs to endure everything that we endured in the same way that we endured. And because of that, he needs the spirit helping him and aiding him into every way, sanctifying him habitually. That's this, this, they would, no, especially Bart would, would avoid that notion of habitual, but uh, in every step of the way, kind of empowering. Bart uses the word of empowering. So the spirit empowers him to resist sin. And what I, what I, what I see in the end of the day with that kind of argument, both from Bar Torres in different ways, is that you are putting the spirit in the agency of the spirit ahead of the agency of the son, right? So he is he is not waiting, so to speak, for the son to breathe him out into himself. And that's why I come to the category, I resort to the category of grace of union and habitual grace from Thomas Aquinas, right? Because Thomas Aquinas will argue that you have the person, the, the fact that the son takes a human nature, he infinitely personally sanctifies that human nature because human nature comes now into a, into a, 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 the, it receives the gift of personal of a divine person and the gift of a divine person is a gift of infinite grace right so just by the fact that the son uh takes that human nature implies then the implies that he cannot implies that he can could or couldn't cannot sin because then he has metaphysical proximity to the divine person uh, and and then uh, after that, you have uh, habitual grace, which is connected to uh, the works of the spirit. So the spirit, theologically, he comes as the perfecter and finisher of something started by the father and the son. Uh, so I don't deny that there is a there's a habitual sanctification of Christ. You know, as he grows up, you know, Luke 2:52, as he grows up, he starts to learn, learn obedience, learn everything. But that doesn't diminish the metaphysical payoff that you have on personal divine union 
of you know a per, the person of the son uniting himself to a divine of a human to a human nature um uh, so that's you know and then you have answers to bart and torrance that follows follows from that but i think i don't know if i'm if i'm not clear you guys can uh ask more questions but that's that's one way that i've articulated it but yeah as relates to you know did christ have fallen human nature did he not um how are there any confessions or creeds that that draw any boundaries on this question like for instance are there any creeds or confessions that say hey you have to if you're going to adhere to this this creed you're going to have to believe that christ had an an unfallen nature for example yeah i i don't think so i think chalcedon um uh, i think chalcedon is is pretty open on this which is kind of the the definition so chalcedon is more of a definition kind of clarifying what's happening in Nicaea. Uh, and it's in a way, I think we, we use the, the analogy of a box before like a square, it can be here, it can be there. And I think in Chalcedon, you can still, you can still hold to a, with a fallen human nature and be a Chalcedonian. I mean, yeah, that's, this Torrance's whole burden of life, right. Is to, is to prove himself to be in the Nicene, Constantinopolitan, uh, Chalcedonian tradition, even though he still had uh, the non-assumptus kind of driving his whole work. That makes sense. And I know you mentioned earlier on, I guess no one's a heretic on this issue, no matter where you go. Um, so I guess if you're not a heretic, then I guess you definitely <laughs> wouldn't be going outside of the, or if you were, you would be going outside yeah. the creeds. That's right. Um, so for those who want to learn more about this issue, I know you've got your book coming out, I guess, sometime this summer. Um, yeah, August. August, okay. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners who want to dig more into this, I think they should go get a copy of that. Are there other resources that they should be aware of um, that would be helpful to understand this topic? Yeah, so uh, uh, E. Jerome uh, Van Kuyken or Van Kuyken, uh, he, he also published his dissertation on this issue with TNT Clark. Uh, it's still fairly expensive, but you could probably get it through your library. I think last time I checked, it was like, I don't know, 130 bucks or something. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Jerome's work is more like, uh, looking at the whole tradition uh, so I th- if I'm not mistaken, he looks upon like 20 theologians. So it's like it's more a historiographical work than a kind of dogmatic, even though he has dogmatic discussions in the end. Right. So he's looking at like Latin fathers, Greek fathers, uh, some medieval theologians, modern theologians. I mean, I don't I don't know if he goes into medieval. I'm sorry, but. He goes. He he just looks upon a lot of the tradition and says, "Hey, this you know these guys are affirming this. These guys are affirming that." Um, and you have the kind of modern resurgence debate with 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 that. So, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he like jumps like breaks into half and half. Half people who have argued for fallen, half people who have got argued for non-fallen, and kind of just lays the ways there. And it's not really trying to argue for anything in the end, just like showing how that discussion has uh, worked into the whole tradition. I think I've met Jerome 
uh, at ETS, I guess, or SBL last year or two years ago. And uh, I mean, you can tell from the work he's art. He, I think he believes more in a following human nature, but it's uh, it's solid work. You can still you can still work uh, through it and see some things. Uh, there are a couple of dissertations that haven't been published. They can look at uh, look at it too. Uh, now names are escaping me now. Uh, there is a, there is another work from an Eastern Orthodox theologian, uh, Hatsikis, Hatsadikis, uh, Jesus Fallen? Question mark. That's the name. At least trying to argue for uh, against the fallen view. So if you want to something that's like unabashedly against the fallen view, is trying to get against the fallen view from all different sorts of angles. Uh, it's kind of pretty massive work. Um, still he's more he's like a more combative personality in the book i think he's the he's not as charitable at points i guess but still something you can see and and, and uh i think like if you if you get my book which is i'm gonna do a a promo here you can go in the first chapter and see all the footnotes because you're gonna see all all the work that engage with this right there yeah good point <laughs> yeah <laughs> So let's just buy my book. That's right. <laughs> so I, I definitely uh, concur with that. So another question I have before we wrap up is for those who want to follow you and follow your work that comes out as time goes on, do you have like a website or social media? Like what do you do for people that want to follow what you're doing? Yeah, I don't have, uh, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I don't usually, uh, discuss a lot of like especially on facebook facebook i usually just use like for family pictures and <laughs> stuff like that yeah, yeah. uh on twitter I'll, I'll get onto some some theology every once in a while but i just kind of got tired of it uh i think a lot of people a lot of people got tired of it <laughs> yeah. uh I think Join that, the club. Oh my yeah twitter is just like so nasty uh but I'm there. If you want to just, you know, hit me and just chat, just DM me. And I try to, I, I'm not too hard to reach, I guess. Um, awesome. I do have like, you know, I'm teaching a few classes, so I'm prioritizing just guiding my students uh, and time with them. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, that's it. No website. Well, I should well, have one. <laughs> Well, this has been great, Brandon. Did you have anything else you wanted to really ask before we? No, I don't. Yeah. But that was that was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, this yeah, was very helpful. Um, I think it was some good stuff going on in there. So, uh, for those who've been listening, I definitely recommend you check out his book. It's coming out in August. We'll make sure to remind you when it does come out and following that you should get a copy. Uh, with that said, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists, and we thank you for tuning in. <laughs>